Today's podcast is sponsored by Inner Professional Online Training Programs. With courses geared specifically for legendary leaders, Inner Professional provides an extraordinary catalog of leadership and professional development programs unlike any online training you've experienced before. Hone your conscious and authentic leadership skills with peer group, networking communities, direct engagement with life experts, and a wealth of compelling, easy to engage on demand content. Learn more at kathleenmerkel.com slash innerprofessional. Hello and welcome to Legendary Leaders, the podcast. My name is Kathleen Merkel and I'm the host of the show. And together with a wide range of legendary leaders themselves and experts in the field of self-leadership, we are going to explore concepts and ideas that show you how you can move past your fears, negative self-talk and constant doubts in order to encourage you to becoming a legendary leader yourself with far more natural impact, influence and inspiration. So are you ready for it? Well, welcome once again to Legendary Leaders, the podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Legendary Leaders, the podcast. I'm delighted to have you here, and I'm wondering, how has your week been so far? How have you been showing up? Have you had this one important presentation to deliver and you were standing in a room wondering how you might be coming across as to whether you say the right thing, becoming perhaps a little bit nervous, beating yourself afterwards as to whether you have said the right thing, presented yourself in the best possible manner? Have you ever had a situation that I definitely have had where you sit in a room, you have in this room an open debate, a conversation, a discussion, And you can't get a word in. And you keep wondering why that is. And eventually, you finally got a word in, but there's simply no reaction to it. And again, you might wonder, why is that? Have I not said the right thing? Do I need to do something about my voice and how I present myself? There are so many situations that I have experienced in the past as a woman in leadership where I was beating myself up for not having done enough, not having been influential enough, not having presented my real thoughts, and I could give you plenty of more examples. So it's time to talk to Eliza Van Court. That's at least what I thought when I read her book, and to work with her, to get to know her, and to understand some of the tools and the ideas that she shares in her wonderful book. And that book is called A Woman's Guide to Claiming Space, Then Tall, Raise Your Voice, and Be Heard. Eliza herself has gone through quite a few challenges in her life that kind of formed and shaped the person she is now. And you will very quickly hear on the show the energy, the passion that she carries, the empathy for others, the humor that she demonstrates as well, but the confidence, this beautifully authentic confidence that she conveys right away. And we are going to be talking about her journey, what made her her, really, this person that you will listen to today. And we are also obviously going to be talking about the book, how we can claim physical space, claim space collaboratively, how we can claim safety in any space and come together united. Women from any background, with any knowledge, challenges in their life, our uniqueness, basically, that we can bring together and become everybody's 
cheerleader as well. Let me share with you however, a little bit more about um, Eliza before I guide you over to the actual conversation. So Eliza has endured uh, traumatic kidnappings as a child by her own mother and then survived a life-altering biking accident as an adult. That rose her to become the renowned empowerment advocate that she is today. Her powerful method of engaging her guests in any form has been described as invaluable and thrilling by previous audiences, making her one of the most sought-after personalities in the industry today. And let me tell you, she even left an impact with my husband, having listened to a man who says, oh my God, I haven't even paid attention that I might unintentionally exclude women from certain conversations. Here we go. So let's see what surprises you might be experiencing in this show today. Can't wait to hear all of your feedback, but let's pop over to the other room and have a listen. Hello, hello. Today I'm speaking to Eliza van Kor. I'm really excited about it, by the way, but hello, Eliza. Hi, so good to see you and be here. I'm really excited to be here, Kathleen. You know what, Eliza, actually, it to me, it feels like um, we have seen and spoken to one another literally every day. <laughs> because, <laughs> because I spent a sort of you could call it a honeymoon with a two-year-old, which isn't a honeymoon <laughs> at all. But when he had his um, lunchtime naps, I had around 45 minutes to an hour to go to the pool, take your book and read. And it was just amazing. So you were literally on my mind and then also on my now husband's mind every day because we discussed it uh, because I was curious about the male perspective and I cannot wait to share some of those key experiences and messages with the listeners here today so thank you so much for joining us I am so excited to be here truly I mean I had such a great time when we talked before and I just I'm excited we're doing it again Yay! So let's kick it off. Apart from being an author, and congratulations again for launching your brilliant book, seriously, A Woman's Guide to Claiming Space, Stand Tall, Raise Your Voice, Be Heard. Uh, and we are talking about that a lot. But what, what is it you do on a day-to-day basis to help other people? Well, my primary job is I'm a speaker and I run workshops. Before the pandemic, I was also a teacher, but the acting technique that I teach, because my background's in political science and the performing arts. So the acting technique I teach really involves being right up in people's faces. And my studio is very small. So we all decided, you know, after the pandemic, we would get it going again. And I've just gotten so busy with the speaking since, because my book launched during the pandemic that we're now talking about when to start up the semester again. And it might be, might be a year or so, because things are still a little crazy, but I, you know, it's interesting. The stuff I do in my workshops is inspired by my 20 years of adopting my own acting technique from the Meisner technique. So I, I get my fix that way, you know, through coaching and workshops and things like that. Yeah. And and if I remember it correctly, then you started acting in high school. I did. I did. And I still get to do it because one of my former students, for example, got Variety's top 100 filmmakers to watch. And he cast me in his film. We're shooting in November. So I don't audition anymore, but I get to do I get to play make believe anyway. But yeah, I was a kid when I was little, I had a lot of trauma. And one of the ways I dealt with it was to live in my imagination 
because in my imagination, I could go anywhere and I could do anything and I could write my own story. So my love of make-believe started at a very young age. Let's go a little bit deeper into this experience, into the trauma as well, if you don't mind. Because I, I said it to you before we hit the record button. I have read most of the book. Um, I have watched your TED Talk. I have read about you. And I still have this one question. How did she do this? So just to make this question clearer to the audience, I'm sitting on Zoom in front of a brilliantly looking, sharp looking woman who has real presence. The red lipstick is on, there's a huge smile on her face. There is a sense of gravitas you get right away, paired with beautiful warmth. And then you read and hear about the trauma you have experienced from being kidnapped three times as a child, learning about your mom that she suffered from schizophrenia and passed away when you were a child as well. No, um, she actually passed away. Actually, she's missing. Oh, she's most still missing. Most people think she's passed away, but yeah. um, she's been missing for over 20 years. And the last message she received was a picture of her. Exactly. Yes. Yes. And I'm sure that probably she has passed away, but it's hard to decide that when someone's missing. My father's still very, you know, youthful at 80. I mean, he still goes on 10 mile hikes, so it's hard for me, but schizophrenia takes a toll on you. So, and being homeless takes a toll on you. I was homeless with her when I was little, a little bit. And so I I doubt she's around. That was not the only um, experience that caused trauma. You also had a dramatic accident too. Yes, I did. I always joke that when the, you know, they always say when you're going, I was riding my bike and somebody was texting and driving and um, my, I'm from a cycling family. I I don't know if I told you this, I'm proud mama moment, but my son is a three-time national collegiate cycling champion for the United States. Wow. He's yeah. So, and he's overcome so much himself with, um, and he lets me talk about it with his dyslexia and other things. And so for him, you know, it was kind of a, a thing for him to go into another world when he cycled. So, but anyway, we know how to ride bikes. I was wearing my helmet. Someone just violated my right of way in every possible way. And I got on, I went on the hood of their car, hit my head and then got knocked unconscious, got thrown into an intersection, hit the other side of my head, woke up with a bilateral brain injury and a subdural hematoma. And I remember as the woman was coming towards me thinking, cause you think a lot, it's amazing when you think you're going to die. Um, you think a lot. And I remember thinking, oh, I thought I was supposed to, you know, see my life flash before my eyes. And then I thought, maybe I'm not seeing my life flash before my eyes. I'm just thinking a lot of thoughts because so much has happened. I'm not going to let this woman texting and driving be the thing that takes me down. (laughs) And that was sort of, it's amazing. You can make jokes to yourself as you're about to be hit by a car. But I think I thought more thoughts in that little second than I've thought in a month at times. And and I admire it on so many different levels also. And that's a story for you to tell what happened after the accident in this recovery period that I believe led you to a certain extent, at least to where you are now. But if we look at those different experiences as a child, teenager, I forgot about the assault that happened in between as well, to the time when you were a mom, right? You had a family and experienced this accident. 
that he said, oh, my God, I'm turning my life into now a different direction. And I'm going to be helping women really claim space. Mm-hmm. You, you've, you've got to explain that a little bit more to me. <laughs> well, I mean, the most simple answer, and I can certainly go into it a bit more, is I hear that a lot as people say, oh, this is an incredible story about how one woman overcame so much. And I always say, no, it's a story about how you can make an impact on the life of one person. Because I had a big sister and I'm going to get, I get choked up whenever I talk about her. But um, I had a big sister who met me when I was about six years old in the big sister, big brother program. And she, she did, I mean, I, when I do my talks, I talk about her. I was sitting on the floor. I had this long, thick hair and I was hiding behind this curtain of hair and she came from this big Irish family. And, you know, she always jokes like the Irish families, when we're having trouble, we go out and we do things and we go places. So she sat down with all these ideas of all these places. She's going to take me and do things with me. And I looked at her and I said, I just want to color because I'd been kidnapped and I didn't want to go anywhere. Last thing I want to do is leave my house. And she said, okay. And she sat down on the floor with me and she colored And I think we talked for two and a half hours and she was there for me every week from then on once a week. And she was at my wedding. She was there when I got a divorce. I was the flower girl in her wedding. When I got hit by the car, she was the first person to make it to the hospital and crawled into bed with me. And I, and she wasn't the only one. I had a teacher who my mother tried to kidnap me out of a classroom And this tiny little woman who was like five feet tall, this was back in the day when you could just walk into school, flung her arms in front of me and said, you'll take this child over my dead body. And she had been taking me home after school because my dad was a single dad the day that the days that he couldn't do it. So I had all these women in my life who came in and sort of swooped in and decided, you know, she's going to be okay. And so I feel like I have almost a, mission to explain to people that first of all, you have to empower yourself because if you don't have gas in your tank, how can you possibly empower anyone else? It's not possible. But once you feel in your own center, you know, take out your hand and, you know, help other people because the slightest little things can just change the course of a life. And that's really why I'm sitting here. It's, it's not that I'm extraordinary. It's that I was surrounded by extraordinary people. Yeah. And you know how beautiful is it? And, and again, before we hit the record button, I said certain things happen, and I often can't explain why. Like today, when I uh, encountered two groups of female leaders, and it was all about being heard and claiming space. And when when we were having this call scheduled, and I could actually support with some of your advice from the book, which was brilliant. That's so great! I love right? that. And and you attract those amazing human beings in your life to guide you and support you throughout some challenging times and very happy times. Yeah. I mean, I think I, that's why I mentor so much. Uh, One year, every time I graduate students, I go and I talk about the student who graduates. So at the end of the acting showcase, I tell stories about them and talk about them and they always give me a gift. And one year, all my students gave me a video where they talked about their experiences 
And this one student, Tyree Cobbins, who's just incredible, and I love him, said to me, this is years ago, and I actually have shown this to every boyfriend, everyone I've ever dated, once I get serious, and I showed it to the boyfriend I'm dating now, who is really, you know, we've been together for a while, and I think he's more than my boyfriend at this point, he's kind of my partner, um, but I call him my boyfriend to keep the love alive, but um, he, <laughs> but Tyree said, um, you know, you don't really have four kids because I have my two sons, my nephew and my daughter. He goes, you have like 20 kids because you treat us all that way. So good luck with that. <laughs> if you ever go on a date, good luck with that. Telling a guy you have 20 kids because if you have 20 kids, you, he is a keeper and I approve. And I remember <laughs> thinking, so I send that to people being like, just so you know, I have 20 kids. But the, but the reality of it is that I, I think that's why I mentor so much because to me, it's almost a sacred act, you know, and my big issue is how do I not mentor so much? You know, I have to cut it off because I have so many mentees and I just love them so much. So the pandemic was actually good for that because I usually pick up two per class. <laughs> I got to cut it off for a while. So you have a break. Yes, exactly. Okay. Well, not a break. I just haven't added more. Yes. <laughs> but I love them all. And, you know, if you ever do mentor, and I recommend that you do, you will learn so much more from them than they will ever learn from you. Oh, yeah. 100%. I, I fully agree. And it's it's such a beautiful thing to approach those conversations with mentees or anybody you really talk um, to with the intent to learn from and with them. It's always a beautiful exchange. Always. Yeah. Always, every time. Does your partner know that he is a partner more than a boyfriend? Have you shared it with him yet? Oh, oh yes. <laughs> he he actually said partner first, um, <laughs> but it, it's it's actually kind of funny. He's he's on the autism scale, mm -hmm. and so he's incredibly straightforward. Incredibly straightforward. So our conversations are hilarious, and our conversations about partner, or even how he told me he loved me is the funniest, most charming thing. And um, it, it really, there's a book, there's a part of my book called Why Not to Lie Like a Sociopath. <laughs> and he can't, he can't do those platitudes. He just tells the truth. And it's it's really, he's brilliant and kind and, and it's really refreshing. I was just about to use that word. It's refreshing, right? It Often is. people around us um, don't want to step on our toes. So I yeah. rather be mindful. I Every time I ask my husband, anything really he's like yeah yeah it's all right he's irish so the answer is it's all right and then i have to ask him um on which scale of all right <laughs> where <laughs> is is it a really great all right or is it the yeah not so much but let's call it all right you know to yes. figure it out. <laughs> it's exactly that's so funny yeah and <laughs> with him though it's so literal that i just have to step back and go oh it's literal so you know the other day we're actually having a conversation and i felt like the the vibe was off I said, is everything okay? And he said, yeah, everything's fine. And then a little bit later, asked again, asked again, three minutes later, finally, like I, on the fourth time, he goes, I'm a little confused. And he's not mad. He's confused. And I said, why? And he said, well, I've told you everything's fine four times now. And if there was a problem, I would tell you. So I'm just wondering if I'm not being clear. <laughs> and I said, no, you're being perfectly clear. And, and I started to laugh and he goes, I don't know why this is funny. And I said, because most people lie, Dan. And he goes, oh, that's true. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> but he's Are amazing. You? He's invented this unbelievable product and he's got a startup and he's so, he's actually quite funny and smart and, but he's just a little on the spectrum. And so it's a wonderful experience for me because I never worry about where he stands. If I had met him earlier in my life, I couldn't have been with him though. Cause I really wasn't in my center and being with someone who is clear like that all the time, if you want to be even a little coddled is not a good idea. <laughs> it's not a good idea at all. So what got you to the place where you felt truly in your center? I think it was my accident, really. I, I think that before the accident, I was able to help other people, but I still had a lot of trauma I hadn't worked through and I really wasn't in my own center. I was really good at helping other people be superheroes. That's what I always tell people, but I really wasn't even ready to put on my own cape. I was scared. And I had the accident and I, it was so profound because I would go to bed. Well, the first time I, I won't give away the story, but I, I woke up after the accident and I walked downstairs and I thought, oh, I must've passed out. And they brought me home and there was this incredible meal on the table. And I said to my ex-husband, John Paul, I said, how did you pull this together? He goes, oh, Tina brought it over. And I said, even for Tina, this is incredible. <laughs> like This is fast. And he said, Eliza you've been awake for a week. And I had no idea. I didn't remember anything. And I went upstairs and I took my clothes off and I was covered in bruises. And I thought, what am I going to do? You know, my life is over. And then later, I, about a week later, I was walking around the block with my, with John Paul and um, a dog barked. It was very dark out. And I jumped like I've never jumped in my life. And the whole accident dumped back into my head like a like a movie. I mean, it was unbelievable. And I remembered what I thought during the accident. And it really motivated me because I at that point, I just didn't want to get out of bed. And I remember thinking, you know, boring things like, you know, even cyclists can get hit by cars or, you know, this feels like my organs are going to come out of my mouth. I hope they don't. But then I remember thinking, I'm so glad I have this rule with my youngest son, Lucian, mm. that I never leave the house without telling him I love him. Mm. And then I thought, I wish I had that rule with everyone else. Mm. And it was in that moment where I just started, I realized I can't let my life slip away. And so I started to rebuild my communication. And as I did, I started realizing that it wasn't just communication that made people in their center. There were five things and if people, you know, I was looking for the one magic bullet that was going to save me. And there's never a magic bullet. It doesn't exist. That's why it's magic. And I realized, you know, oh my God, these are the things. If I can work on these things while I'm working my communication, I'm going to be better off. And I was. One of my students eventually came to visit me and she started crying. And I said, oh no, am I still bad? Because <laughs> like, I thought I was so much better. And she said, no, 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 Eliza, you're you again, but you're different. I think you're stronger. And the process of having to rebuild my communication and examine my life like that, I think is what put me in my center. And that's actually when I realized that I changed my perspective on life. I changed this idea of living in the moment, which everybody says live in the moment, mm -hmm. but it's not true because if you don't remember the moment, you know, it's, it's meaningless. Yeah. It's really for me, you don't live in the moment. What you do is you think about your, because the moment's also gone. We've had so many moments since we started this talk. I mean, you can't live in it. It's, it's like infinitesimally small. But what you do is you 
live with the idea that your life is a collection of memories and the memories can give you joy. They can teach you. And the question is when you go to bed at night or when you are at the end of your life, what kind of memories did you create for yourself? Mm -hmm. Did they make you feel joy? Did you help other people? Are you ashamed of them? And if you can sort of be mindful of that as you go through your life, I think that was when I really started to feel like, you know, it doesn't really matter what's going on out here. What matters is, you know, the collection of memories I'm creating. But that was a process, wasn't it? Um, oh, yeah. You describe in your book a lot of detail, what happened there, how long it took, what you were focusing on in your recovery time. And it would be great if you could share a little bit more with the listeners about that period of time. Um, how did you use your ability? I'm calling it deliberately ability here yeah. of not being able to communicate the way you did before to learn your own lessons to make yeah. observations and so on and so forth. Yeah. Well, first of all, as you may have noticed, I'm an extreme extrovert. <laughs> so I like to talk and I, I love to connect with people, but I would tire easily. So I couldn't do that anymore, which was a profoundly different experience with me. It wasn't that I had to choose to shut up. I literally would just run out of gas. And so I spent, I couldn't read it first. So I spent a lot of time listening. I did a lot of research. I'm somebody who, when I'm anxious, I research. So I, I kind of broke it down in component parts. So the first thing was I started looking at the way in which I'd been teaching my acting school on my acting technique and the minutia of human behavior And just watching that. But then what I started to notice is that the same kind of micro behaviors coming out of one person would be completely received differently if they were a different person, the same physicality, the same voice. So I started kind of breaking down. So what is this? A lot of it is race and class and gender and pretty privilege and all of these things that make people look at one person doing one thing and being say, great. And somebody else does it. And it's terrible. I started listening to journal articles. I started uh, everything. Oh, basically I just talked and I listened and I read and I thought, and I did everything I could to basically break down communication into its component parts. And the thing that I found most interesting is I couldn't get a lot of research on communication that actually addressed the socio-political, that addressed the fact that, you know, they'd say, well, when you open your hands like this, people will think this, not true for women. You know, it, you should tell everyone to slow and then go fast and go slow. Mm -hmm. Not true for most women. Mm -hmm. Women actually tend to have elevated speech patterns, so they'll get worse. So that was the other thing I realized is there's all of this advice that we get about communication And it's really useful for cis white men. Everyone else, it doesn't always work. And so that was a huge thing. And so eventually I just, instead of intuitively communicating, I began to mindfully communicate. I began to be aware of, oh, when I do this, people do this. When I, <laughs> And it was almost like, I think a lot of times when I work with people on the autism spectrum, I can break it down for them now because they need, they often feel like people aren't understanding or they're insulted by what they say. And I can directly instruct them because so much of what we're doing, we're unaware of. And basically what I did was I took my communication from a very unconscious place to an extremely conscious place. And I, I considered it, I'm a nerd, I'm a sci-fi nerd. I, I consider it like looking at the HTML on the wall, like Neo in the matrix when the bullets are coming and he's like, no. And the bullets and he goes like this and like the bullets just fall down. I thought, I see it now. When I talk to people, 
I'm seeing the HTML. It's it's pretty, it's totally different than before my accident. There's a lot in it what you've just said. I know. Um, (laughs) What what stuck with me in particular is the topic around the micro behavior. So I now I did the pitch. Did you hear that? Yes, yes, yes. Reading your book made me so mindful of stuff. Like I'm ending sentences and basically turn them into a question. Mm -hmm. Um, Posture. I think since I was 13, my whole family was trying to tell me your posture is bad. You look, you make yourself so much smaller Mm -hmm. when you walk and so on. My husband has been telling me that since we met. With the book, I'm like, really aware when I walk along the street, how I'm Mm -hmm. walking, what my posture is like. Anyway, micro behaviors. Absolutely. It makes you aware of that stuff. So for some people, I could assume someone says something in the same way, the same kind of language pattern, but you said it might be perceived and often there are socioeconomic differences. Could be race, for example, I'm adding sex to it or gender in this case, and so on and so forth, which means when, for example, a woman says something, it's being not taken as seriously or she's Inter- being interrupted more, for example, so microaggressions from the male side versus mm-hmm. men? Or do you have a specific example you can share with us in terms of what that you have experienced at this time? Oh, sure. I mean, one of the bi- biggest examples, which comes from the, the, the root of it, is that women are trained from a young age to make men comfortable in conversation. So if you've ever noticed there's like an awkward pause almost always it's the woman who jumps in to try to save the pause because we are supposed to be not just caretakers in life, but caretakers in our communication. And so if you see a man who's talking and he's not smiling much, he looks, you know, like pensive and serious. If a woman's not smiling much, she's the B word, right? Women need to be smiling and making sure everybody's okay and tell, you know, this is actually Deborah Grunfield, a Stanford researcher who I love calls constant smiling, the badge of appeasement. It's just, you know, I'm going to make you happy all the time, all the time, not just smiling sometimes, but all the time. And often, you know, women need to be, they found that in, in leadership, if a man is just strong and authoritative, people say, great, what a great leader. A woman can be strong and authoritative, but if she's just that, she's going to get huge pushback. She needs to do that and be nurturing. And if she's not both of those things, people have a visceral reaction that they used to call gender incongruity, where people just go, oh, and they don't like it. And they get very, very, um, they have a viscerally negative reaction, which is a lot, which if you see the words they use about Hillary Clinton, Mm -hmm. which she was not at all nurturing. It was hilarious when you see Bernie up there being like, no, you're wrong. And everyone would be like, oh, he's so charming. And I thought, what if Hillary did that? It would be a lot to be done. So it's just a huge double standard. There is a recent example that goes a little bit in the other direction. I don't know if you have heard about the Finnish prime minister and her experience lately. It was here in Europe, across Mm -hmm. the news still is, on social media, everywhere. So she is the youngest prime minister, if I'm not wrong, that has ever been in um, the position, which is brilliant. Super smart, knows the the new generation and what they need and uh, bold in her decision-making and so on and so forth. So um, has made already some fantastic changes uh, in Finland, from my perspective, at least. Mm -hmm. What she dared to do is to 
meet with her fr- uh, her friends at a party and party. There was dancing involved. There was singing involved. Imagine that. It's tough. A video was recorded and the rubbish thing about it, and that should be your cheerleader, your friend. If you record a video, keep it there. Full stop. It was leaked, right? And there's nothing dramatic apart from a dancing, fun-loving prime minister in this video. It went across the media here everywhere. There was a lot of, and I'm calling it out the B word, there was a lot of bitching, a lot of complaining. People um, requested her to do a truck test right away and so on and so forth. So here's my question, right? If you have, like me, lived in the UK for such a long period of time where you literally had the biggest dickhead as a prime minister over the last few years, corrupt (laughs) male, white male people, look at the States in the last few years. And there are so many other examples across the globe where literally being a macho um, who is not trustworthy, who says inappropriate things, and I'm talking about UK here as well, is glorified. Yeah. Yeah. What, what's what's wrong in this story, right? And it's almost like a woman who shows she has fun. She uh, has, and I don't like the expression, but a work-life balance, who has a social mm-hmm. life as well. That makes her also a better prime minister, right? Yeah. From the looks of it, the wrong thing to do. Yeah, the answer is one word, sexism. Yes. <laughs> That's Big the time. That's just sexism. We have a president of the United States who said he'd like to grab women's genitalia. And everyone was like, well, that's eh, actually fine. <laughs> so fine. Which also, you know, it's fine, which is actually really interesting because it shows how much when you are in a targeted group, you start to absorb the language of the people who are oppressing you and you can then you contribute to your own oppression because women voted for him. And there were women who had T-shirts on that said, he can grab me by the, you know, and, you know, you, you start to internalize the lie that somehow you deserve less than everyone else. And then when someone comes to you and says you deserve more, it's incredibly triggering and you don't like that person. Yeah. which I think is part of what happened with Hillary. I mean, Hillary's campaign had a lot of problems, granted, but, you know, Hillary also said, you know, you deserve more than this. And, you know, if you've ever gone to someone in an abusive relationship and said you deserve more and they're not ready to leave, they'll get angry at you. And it's just a macro level of that. And here we see how dominant those challenges still are. They are really present. They are out there. And I hear in workshops quite often, well, we don't have these issues in our country. They are literally everywhere. And sexism is just one of the issues. And what the beauty of this whole story that I've just shared is, is there's also a movement that has started. It started earlier on, but now I think it moves more and more into the day and today where more and more women speak up for themselves become cheerleaders of others as to whether they know them or not. It doesn't matter. You should have seen the messages that were going around in terms of, hey, I stand with her and fun messages and so on and so forth. That's something great that comes out of it. Absolutely. And and, and that takes me to the other question about your book. What was the core reason for you to say, I write it and I focus in particular on women claiming space? Well, I think that from the time they're little, women are told that they shouldn't claim space. And in fact, we're rewarded for not claiming space. That's why you hear things like, 
you know, oh, be a good girl. Oh, she's so sweet. She never talks up. She never talks back. She's such a good girl. You know, good girl means quiet girl. Good girl means compliant girl. Good girl means you're not going to, you know, ruffle feathers. And, you know, you don't hear people saying, oh, look at that quiet little boy. Isn't he great? Do you see how he never, never questions anything? No one says that about little boys. So that was the first part. And the second part is I'm also really interested in in intersectionality, the intersection of womanhood and all the other isms. And so for me, it was really important to have a book out there that's literally a guidebook with everything in it that doesn't just speak to white women. That was really, really important to me. And I think that the combination of those two things was sort of why I decided to do that. And also, I mean... (laughs) (laughs) on a very practical level, I would give talks and people would come up to me after the talk and follow me to the bathroom. (laughs) And they'd say, I got to tell you a story. I got to, you know, the guy who asked that question out there and said he's interrupted all the time, we can't get a word in in meetings. And I thought, we're all doing this in the bathroom because we don't feel safe having these conversations in the sunlight. And so I want to take the conversations that I've been having with women in the bathroom, in my kitchen, uh, you know, at Cornell with professors once students have left and I've given a talk and and bring them to the forefront and make them a conversation that we're having in the sunlight. Yeah. And um, the bathroom conversations actually spark another question. When I read about, it was, I think, the intro chapter experiences that you have learned about from your transgender friends. I think you are referring to Leo in one of your talks as well. I had this massive aha moment. So transgender friends who turned into men after having Mm -hmm. lived a life as a woman, right? And they, in the book, you are talking about how they used to be interrupted and suddenly they feel listened to Mm -hmm. since they have become men. And I remember putting the book down, sitting at the pool, right? Putting the book down. I'm like, right, that's my husband's name. Can you believe that? That is just incredible. And I had this moment when I was literally put back perhaps 10 years ago into a meeting room with some quite strong male leaders and white male leaders mainly. I was asked for my expertise and the amount of times I felt interrupted, not really listened to, and not really being taken seriously, despite mm-hmm. the fact that I believed in the way I conveyed the message, in the expertise, and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. And I kept asking myself, why is that? What are you, so I, in this case, doing wrong? Mm-hmm. Nope, and, nothing. <laughs> and and that, that was the moment where I just shared it with him. And he said yeah. to me, at, sitting there by the pool, and he said to me, you know what? I think I do that on a regular basis mm-hmm. in meetings with you. And I don't even realize how often I do it and that I do it mm-hmm. so often. Yeah. And it became a really, really fantastic understanding conversation. Yeah. So here are two questions. Okay. I'm, the first, I'm ready. <laughs> the first one is... <laughs> What are all the other learnings that you've taken away from those conversations with your transgender friends? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I, I think one of the most, and I'm sorry that my son just called again. I, I Normally I get everything turned off in the middle of the podcast, but I was on the phone with my other child. So I always think it's funny when in podcasts, my motherhood comes in because I always, I used to think, oh God, I hope they cut that out. And now I think, I hope they don't cut that out because this is life. 
and as mothers and as people, but often who, yeah. who gets called the mom, this is what happens. And we all feel so ashamed, but it happens to people on podcasts too. And you know what? It's part of life and that's okay. And we actually need to be more tolerant of that because that in some ways is why women are not favored in the workplace because we're worried about that kind of thing. It takes two seconds. It's not going to affect people's work performance. That's another story. Um, so anyway, I have not turned it off yet because I can't figure out how to do it from my laptop. But <laughs> if he calls again, I'm going to say, Jonah, I'm in the middle of a podcast. But uh yeah, the most interesting thing, that story really hit me because when I asked him that, you know, I said, Leo, what's the one thing, Leo Taylor, by the way, he does talks on gender and sexuality and he works at the University of Ohio. If you ever have a chance to hire him, I'm going to put a plug. He's a genius. But I said, what's the one thing that just hit you more than anything when you transitioned? And he said, oh, that's easy. People listen to what I say more now and I'd, I'm not interrupted. You know, if I'm in a meeting and I and I say something, I have to be so careful because I'm, if I'm with women, everybody just stops talking. He said, I had no idea the amount of power and privilege I had until I didn't have it. So that was amazing. And then the other thing that hit me even in a more profound way was I was talking to someone who transitioned to becoming a woman. Now, first of all, we know that when people transition to becoming a man, their income goes up. When they become a woman, they actually become more likely to be homeless. because the, And they think it's because people have such a hard time real, you know, dealing with this sudden lack of privilege. So this person used to be a six foot one blonde man. And he lets me, she lets me tell the story. And now she is what she should have been at birth, you know, because she was assigned male at birth. Now she uh, is she, her, and she said it took a while for her to appear and present as a woman, but eventually she did. And she was on a bus one day and everybody got off the bus. She was the last stop. And the bus driver shuts the door to the bus, walks over to her and starts to sexually assault her, starts to like fondle her and touch her. And she said, Eliza, I, I was in this world as a six foot man. I never thought about those things. It literally wasn't in my consciousness. I could go out to my car in the middle of the night with my underwear on. I didn't worry. And I didn't believe what was happening. It was so out of my experience. It took me like, she said, I didn't know exactly how long it took, but it felt like it took me, you know, 10 minutes. It probably took me two to three minutes to realize this is really happening. I'm saying no and he's not stopping. Now she is quite strong and he was not expecting how strong she was. And she fought him off and got out of the bus. But she said, it was just so far out of the realm of my experience that I couldn't believe it was happening. Now, if you go on a bus or I go on a bus and it's the last stop and we're alone and the bus driver shuts the door and starts talking, walking toward us, we're off that bus in a hot second. Mm -hmm. We know it's dangerous. We're, you're, you know, we're like, it's time to leave. Yeah it didn't even occur to them. And she said, that's the level of privilege. I, you know, I had safety privilege. I don't have that anymore. And she's six feet tall. So, you know, we, I think that sometimes, you know, I told my friend, my little brother, Alec Osinski, brilliant actor that, you know, when I go to the car, I am on my phone. I pretend to be on my phone, even if it's a dark alley. And he said, Oh my God, really? And I said, yeah. yeah, women, when you see them in the dark alley on the phone, most of the time, they're not on the phone. If it's in the middle of the night, they're probably not calling a friend at 3 a.m. They're scared. And we've learned these tactics. 
Yeah. And it seems to be getting worse. An area in London I used to live in, women don't dare anymore to walk along the street with the headphones in their, uh, in their ears because they don't hear someone approaches them and the assault or the number of assaults has gone up so significantly that they are thinking about all sorts of strategies to protect themselves. And I don't want to say that this doesn't happen to men. Absolutely not. It can. No question. But in this case, it, it felt to them, I spoke to a friend of mine who it happened to, who, who said, it's just nothing you can do in that moment. And, and the man just reacted as he has got every right to do it. Statistically, it doesn't happen to men almost ever in terms of a stranger, you know, doing that. It just doesn't. And I think, I really think it's okay to say, you know, it is hitting one population more than the other. Mm-hmm. Because when you're, I think we've done this thing now, it's almost like, when we're talking about other things, we say, oh, but this issue also affects these people. Yes, but the primary person who deals with this is this population, and we need to target the other population and educate them. Yeah. And, and I think it's okay. It does happen. Uh, what happens to men is usually when they're younger, and there's so much shame around that that they don't tell anyone, and it's absolutely horrific, you know, and they're more vulnerable. But, it, you know, the most vulnerable time for young girls who are college-educated is actually when they're in college. That is the most dangerous time to be a woman. That is the time you're most likely to be assaulted. So it's, it's you know, we live in a very tricky world. And I, I, I in terms of, you know, forced births now in the United States, I wouldn't want my daughter to be in a forced birth state because it's a dangerous time as it is to be in college. Absolutely. It was shocking to me. And everybody keeps talking about you shouldn't kill a child. No, absolutely not. But have you ever thought about a situation like that? You know, you get pregnant because of an assault. You deal with the trauma. I can't even put myself into the shoes of those girls. I can't. I can't either. And I think, you know, my my ex-husband, who I'm very close with still, is a physician. And he told me a story, which I won't even tell because it's so traumatizing about his first rotation when he was on the OBGYN floor. But the the bottom line is there was a woman who had been trying to have a baby and trying to have a baby and finally got pregnant and got preeclampsia and refused to have an abortion, even when she was like almost dying. And eventually she was dying and almost coding and she had to have an abortion or else she would have died on the table. And she was crying during the whole thing. And it was horrible. And he said, you know, Eliza, the people who are going in, even though this whole politicization of late-term abortion kills me because most of the women going in were desperately wanting to keep the child. And that's why it's so late. And they are in such active trauma. And now they're being re-traumatized by all this. And it's horrible. And then the other population that tends to go in is populations that were denied access to safe abortion because of where they live and their poverty level and things like that. So, you know, even the most extreme example that's being talked about, if we were to give access to safe abortions and, you know, if we were to have some grace for people who've gone through hell, I think we'd be having a different conversation. I agree with you. I don't quite know how to move away from. This that, very serious. That, well, actually, I had a question for you. Yeah. Okay. You said your husband had thoughts on the book, and I always love to hear 
what men think. I've had a lot of men say it applied to me. The anti-mentor section applied to me or Mm -hmm. men of color in particular have said, I don't want to centralize myself, but that book was about me for a lot of it. And I said, yeah, it kind of should have been like everyone's guide to claiming space, especially targeted groups with a special emphasis on women. But I don't think we should have put that on the cover or marketed it very well. <laughs> and also introverts can also help. <laughs> it could be helped with this. Well, it would, uh, it would have been a question for you as well in terms of what's the feedback so far of the male population? Because you said in one of your talks so nicely, you know, if there was a book about what, what men talk about in the bathrooms, I want to read it and I'm with you there. So always curious also to know what guys think about it. So he hasn't read the book yet. I've shared with him some of the chapters, the summary of the chapters with my little aha moments. And um, one was about so the basics of your voice, your posture, and how you can claim space in that way. And I did some of the exercises so he saw that and that was really interesting for him because he struggles with public speech with um posture and mm-hmm. um how can i say that um showing confidence it's quite mm-hmm. an introverted irish man and um therefore he said to he said basically yeah it's so true you know um he is one of the silent types for example who uses silence without intention however to think right which is is all right and quite often I would sit there despite the fact that in workshops I use silence myself but I would sit there and I'm like oh come on you need to have an opinion (laughs) to push on it he said oh that's really interesting you can actually use the silence more powerfully to leave an impact to convey a message, to give myself the time to truly think, because he starts to put pressure on himself that he now needs to give the right, quote unquote, answer. So the topic around silence really resonated. And as I said before, he had this huge aha moment in terms of him interrupting others. So we will have situations in the car, for example, when he calls clients or partner suppliers, and he would interrupt them very frequently. And I would say to him afterwards, man, it came across so-and-so to me, right? I said, ah, nah, BS. So there was a real reflection about interrupting, what it does with others. Why interrupting? Do we go into the conversation with the assumption we know it all? So let's just cut it short. What is it? And what are the actual opportunities we can create that will help the relationship, the knowledge, our learning, mm-hmm. confidence of others. If we simply were present in the conversations and actually learn to listen more. Yeah. And I think, first of all, listening is so powerful. And secondly, there are different kinds of interruptions. Mm-hmm. Now they've actually done some really interesting research that little boys are not taught to interrupt. But what they have noticed is little boys are not stopped when they interrupt Mm. at the same rate as little girls. So Mm. when a little girl interrupts, they say, don't interrupt, honey, don't interrupt. They don't do that to little boys. And so little boys don't get that training. And so it's not like men are going around being like, today, I'm going to be an interrupter. (laughs) That's my job. They just didn't have the same training to not interrupt. But what I always say to people is like, I'm Italian. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm Jewish and Italian, but you know, both of my people, like we, we talk over people, like we, we like, we have these conversations when you're at my Italian sides, you know, they're, they're overlapping, like they're, no one finishes a sentence and that's okay. I call that a horizontal interruption, which means everybody's sort of interrupting at the same rate. And so it's almost weird if you're not interrupting because everybody's like, why do I have to wait for you to, but 
it's um, vertical interruption that's the problem, is when there's a power differential. And there's automatically a power differential when you're with a man and a woman because one person has been trained to interrupt at a higher rate than the other. And so I just, what I try to do is be really mindful when I'm talking to someone, you know, especially because I'm an interrupter more than the average woman because of my ethnicity and my training in that way, you know, am I interrupting at a higher rate than they are? And if I am, I've got to be real careful not to do that because now I'm participating in vertical interruption. But that requires you to be aware of it. Yes. Yes, it does. (laughs) And and that's why we could all help each other as humans and as women by interrupting moments of interruption. So when you notice it is happening and if you're in a power position, you can say, oh, I'm sorry, I hadn't heard what Jane was saying. I'd love to hear the rest. You know, just sort of interrupt the interrupter and say, oh, I'm sorry, I think Tom hadn't finished his sentence if you have a really introverted man who, who is easily interrupted you know, interrupt for the interrupt, interrupt the interrupter and let them know you saw what happened and you actually want to hear what the other person has to say until they jump in with their opinion. Mm. The lovely bridging method, helping them out in that moment. Yes. So ethnicity is a huge topic. You mentioned it twice now as well. And I know it's something that really matters to you, true diversity. And you mentioned also the story about post-recovery period, when you saw the differences in micro behaviors and how they were being perceived, not just between genders, but also different ethnical backgrounds. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to learn a little bit more about your experience here. What differences are there amongst women from different backgrounds as well? Sure. Well, white women have more privilege than black women, period. And I think that we need to be aware of that. I think sometimes we weaponize our womanhood and think because we deal with sexism, somehow we can't be racist, which is just not so. Yeah. Um, I just as every man in the world is, you know, a little racist, uh, sexist, and I am too. We inter- we breathe it in, we breathe it out. You know, we're all a little bit racist, depends on how racist we are. I think the difference is, are you aware of it? And are you trying not to participate in it as much as possible? There are two big examples for me. The first one is, you know, after George Floyd, I was talking to one of my dear friends who's a black woman. And she said, if anyone wants to understand intersectionality, tell them this story. And she said, how did you feel when your son was born? And I said, oh my God, it was so beautiful. I held him, I was so excited. And she said, I did too. And I cried because I knew I would worry about him every day of his life. And I thought, that's a woman's issue. That's a mother's issue. Just because it's not my issue doesn't mean it's not a mother's issue. So as a woman, it's my responsibility to work on anti-Black violence because what it does is it hits women also. Um, There's a woman named Leslie McBean who just did this research. She talked to women, Black women specifically, the impact on the mother of losing a child. And we don't talk about that that much, but it's profound. And and she's an incredible woman, does anti-racist work. So that's the first thing. The second thing is once you become aware of it, it's not impossible to do something about it. So Kim Munson-Burke, who I talk about in my book, and Dr. Nia Nunn, who I also talk about in my book, actually work together. Kim has an MSW. And uh, Dr. Nunn is uh, Dr. Nunn. (laughs) And um, they uh, would be in meetings together talking about kids because they did uh, psychology. 
And for a while they were working just with children together and Dr. Nunn would say something and everyone would ignore it. And then Kim would say it and everyone would say, what a great idea. So eventually Kim went to Dr. Nunn and said, you know, I don't want to put you on the spot, but would you be comfortable if I said something in the meeting, which is the first step to allyship is not just to go in there guns blazing, because maybe the person doesn't want that kind of attention. Maybe they're exhausted. <laughs> so, um, you know, Nia said, absolutely. So the next thing, t- time it happened, Kim put her hand out and she said, I got to stop us right there. Dr. Nunn just said something and nobody thought it was a good idea. I just paraphrased exactly what she said. And now it's being adopted as a great idea. I think we need to stop and examine that. She didn't shame anybody. She didn't, you know, she just said, we need to examine that. And I think that as women, you know, we need to make sure that, you know, it's easy. Kim could have thought, great, I'll take credit for this idea. This is awesome. But instead she thought, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. And I think that as women, white women, we've sort of failed in many ways, including black women uh, in the feminist movement, which is why a lot of black women want nothing to do with it. And I understand that. And to me, we have a lot of fence uh, mending to do. And in fact, I, my forward writer and I talk about this all the time because she's a black woman and we've been starting some new work on communication that we're now doing in organizations together not it's not just focused on race it's just about how do you communicate in a mindful way across differences to optimize your organization and i think if we could all learn that skill the world would be very very different and i think that's the first step to true intersectionality and it's very near and dear to my heart you know partly because of my own personal experiences which i write about in the book and that i could imagine again requires you to be in your center to be totally okay with yourself so okay that you stand up in that moment and say, look, that's what I noticed. And we've got to re-examine that. Absolutely. I think it's even more, uh, what's even harder is when you start to understand the level of racism that people deal with every day, you start to really feel, um, you start to, people will then who are black start to trust you more because you you actually kind of get it which means you're going to form more friendships with people of different races, which means you're going to mess up more, but actually you're not messing up more. You just have people around you who are telling you because they've invested in you. And so, you know, I remember very early on in my work, I was one of my friends who was a black woman said, you know, you kind of did a messed up thing. I don't remember what it is. I think I blocked it out. And I said, no, let me explain why. And she said, she put her hand out. She said, Eliza, When a black woman tells you about her experience, your only job is to shut up and listen. You don't have to tell me why. And I thought, oh yeah, if a guy comes up to me and like inappropriately, you know, says something, I don't want him to explain why he said it. I want him to say, sorry, thank you for telling me. I'll do it differently. Yeah. And I think we just apply what we want from men to our relationships with black women. And that's a huge step forward. And I think we can, as women, change the world if we can just support each other a little more. And it would be great to understand what else is it we can do. You have just given this beautiful, two beautiful examples that are so practical. What else is it we as white women need to focus on more, need to become more aware of in order to contribute to those changes? Yeah. I think the key is to believe that there's a world that we'll never see. And then when we are told something about that world, to believe it, And if we have participated in one of the negative things, make sure that we 
hear it and accept it and don't try to explain. And the worst thing we can do is cry. White women tears are actually have been weaponized, at least in the United States, in deadly ways. And so it's very important that we just hear it and, and receive it. And, you know, I think that that is really step one. I, I actually had a friend recently who worked and actually saying you're sorry. I have a friend who runs this, she manages this huge store in New York City. Huge. It's like, she's a rock star. The manager is a rock star. It's a huge position. She It was a huge international search to get her there. She's black. She just went to deposit. The person who normally deposited the checks had to leave early. And she said, you know what? I'm going to do it for you. Don't worry about it. She went to the bank. They didn't believe she was the manager. They kept her there for two hours because she had some cash with her also. And she was afraid to leave. So she ended up, and she was worried they were going to call the police. It wasn't until her boss, who happened to be actually in the UK on a different time zone, popped onto the call like two hours in and said, when they finally got a hold of her and said, this is my employee, what are you doing? That they let, they let her deposit and let her go, basically let her go. And the crazy part is her boss didn't have to show ID. Her boss didn't have to do anything. She just had to be white. And so the, the thing that my friend said to me is she said, Eliza, the woman, the teller who caused all this to happen, who got the manager, who brought me in this room, who was interrogating me, she never said she was sorry. She never said she was sorry. And if she had just said, I'm so sorry, I, I just, I feel mortified. I'm so sorry. It would have gone a long way, but she never did. And I think that's the other thing. It's like, when you mess up, just say, I'm sorry, yeah. you know? And mean it. And mean it and mean it. And, you know, I, I think that all, for me, having friendships and, and this sort of journey I've gone on on race. And it started, I think, when I was in foster care and I was the only white kid in all black foster care in Oakland, California, in an all black neighborhood. Um, it, that was just the beginning of it. And I thought I knew something about race because of that, but I didn't. <laughs> But that was the beginning of just understanding, oh, even being different when everyone's treating you beautifully is hard. And then as I got older, I thought, oh, now I'm adding this other thing that is a mom to it. Mm -hmm. But those relationships are so beautiful and so honest mm -hmm. and so true because you're going to mess up. So you have to have a level of honesty and truth and ability to learn and grow from each other that's different, I think, than same race relationships. Mm -hmm. And I think that that humility that you have to have actually makes and you know because you're gonna mess up <laughs> um makes makes you a better person with everything because you learn that you know we're all human and we all make mistakes and it's okay how do you move forward yeah and i was just about to say and it's okay so you take it's this okay. pressure off you to say you know i have to be in a certain way i have to be perfect it's, it's all a path of learning so that's all a part of learning all a part of learning that's what it all is right i mean to me Beating yourself up when you make a mistake is the best way to stay in the mistake. You know, it, the, the really powerful thing is how do you think, oh, okay, I did this. How can I do it differently moving forward? And that's, you know, the most powerful thing that you can possibly do. That's what keeps you from getting stuck on a road to hell because <laughs> you keep staying in the same thing and doing the same thing over and over because you're so drenched in shame. So how can we take our male friends with us on this path? Well, I, I think that the biggest thing to do is exactly what you're doing with your husband. I think that interpersonal conversations that are not blaming, 
but are factual, like, you know, Hey, yeah. You know, he said, Oh, I think maybe I do that. You know? And I I'm assuming you didn't say, yeah, you did. you're the biggest jerk ever. Right. (laughs) I somehow guess that's not what you did. And, and that allowed him the space to think about it. I, I think that when you shame people and tell them they're bad, 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 and stop doing this, it never works. I think simply doing moments where, you know, like Kim interrupting the moment or educating, you know, all of those things are just so, so critical and raising feminist daughters who, who will not tolerate being in a world where they're not treated fairly. I mean, my daughter had a huge turning point in her life and she's a powerful, powerful young woman and she was going on the wrong path and it had largely to do with the patriarchal structures. So I think that if we if we are feminists, which means we believe in equal rights and opportunities for all genders, and if we are educators in a kind and non-shaming way, I think the world can trans and we work together across differences. I think the world will be a very different place. And you mentioned your son a couple of times, apart from the fact that he also wanted to be a part of this call here a few times. Um, Jonah. <laughs> so how has, have your experiences impact the way you raised and raise him? Hmm. I have feminist boys and now they're young men and I love it. They, I mean, my son Jonah would say, I'm not a feminist. Don't call me a feminist. He absolutely is a feminist. He, the way he treats women, the way he, you know, he's, he actually has his own business. He's incredible. The way he hires people, he, you know, he's living a, a feminist life and that doesn't, you don't have to call yourself a feminist. You just have to live a feminist life. Yeah. So I think, and that's just modeling, you know, and not not letting, I mean, I, for example, I realized at a certain point that I was having my daughter do more of the domestic labor, you know, somehow I was letting the boys off the hook. Like we are just so trained, so viscerally trained and trying to kind of dismantle some of that in your own personal life. I think that's really live the life. You know, I always say the life you live is the lesson you teach. Yeah. So, you know, live the lesson you want to teach. And I think for girls, it takes a little more direct instruction, like, which is what happened with my daughter. Um, but I think actually, if you want, I can, I can tell you that story. Cause that I think is a story that every single mother needs to hear or father or any parent who's raising a girl. Um, so, okay. This is one of my favorite stories. Cause I think it just, I, I, I want to put it in like a, I want to put it on a neon sign. So my friend, Kim, who I told you is my guru is over. And she turned to me and she said, Ella's in trouble. Ella was Ella had been a triathlete. She was really strong. She was brilliant. And suddenly she's clumsy. Oh, I'm so clumsy. And she's, you know, pretending to fall into walls and acting stupid. And Kim said, she's in trouble. And you have to explain something to her. You have to explain to her that when girls are little, before they hit puberty, they get their social capital from what they do. And as soon as they do, and so do boys, as soon as they develop, they get their social capital from if the boys like them. And so they start to make themselves very, very small in order to make the boys like them. And that's what she's doing. And you have to explain that to her directly. So I did. She didn't listen to me, of course. And then (laughs) three weeks later, she came home and she said, mom, you were right. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, well, and the boys, of course, still get their capital for what they do. And so but they also know they have this power. They have this power of like, whether the girls like them. 
And so she said, I was walking down the hall and these two boys started following me really closely behind me. So I would hear them. And one boy said, I like a girl because she's smart. And they started laughing like it was a joke. And the other boy said, well, I like a girl because of her personality and started laughing. And I said, how did you feel about that? And she said, it was mean. And I said, yeah, it was mean. And from that moment on, she started thinking not of like, oh, I got to be pretty for these boys. I've got to do these, but it's mean. (laughs) It's me. It's not okay that I have to change myself. And she just stopped doing it. And the amazing thing is, and I see this all the time with women, you know, the boyfriends she's attracting are unbelievable young men because they want a young woman in her center. And boy, is she, she was quoted in the New York times when she was a senior in high school. I mean, she's unbelievable. And, you know, I believe so much of it is that she just decided in that moment and it just changed everything that she wasn't going to participate in that. And I think if we can teach our girls, you know, your capital doesn't come from boys, your capital comes from you. That's where it comes from. That is the first step to launching a generation of powerful girls. Loving this. I love this conversation, the lesson. It makes me think as a, as a mom of a son as well. You know, for me, it's really important. I, th- I think constantly about how can I be a role model? And he's so young. But for me, one of the sentences I say to him is indeed every day I love you. When he yes. goes to kindergarten, when he goes to bed, it's really important to me. It's important that I acknowledge when he is having a tantrum and is frustrated because emotions are absolutely fine. Yes. Let's not avoid those. Yes. You know, I dislike it when someone body shames little ones right away. Where's the big belly? Where's that? Mm. It's I, That's nothing that I will ever say to him. That's you right. know, and there are so many other tiny moments when you are as a parent more aware of them. You don't have to change. You don't have to read books and follow all the advice in the books. You can simply follow your intuition and your awareness yes. and make those tiny changes. And as you said, by being a role model as well, it, it can be a powerful impact. And that is something you can translate in the business world, in your social environment, and live and breathe it. And yes. you make mistakes along the way. There's no doubt. Mistakes are how you grow. You know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think, you know, I I believe that it's important to vote for the right politicians. I think women should run for office. I believe all of those things. But I believe fundamentally the revolution is going to happen from each human being believing they have the right to claim space and claiming it in an equitable way and living your life every moment as if, you know, you want to look back on your life and say, I claim space. And that means not just for yourself, but for other people as well. Thank you so, so much. There are two uh, last questions I have for you. Mm-hmm. The first one is, and then I'll let you go to your electrician, which sounded dodgy. Yes, I, don't mean yes, like I have two lights here <laughs> <out>. <laughs> um, Your book is full of amazing advice, experiences, and we haven't even touched the surface of how women can claim space. So what would you highlight here on this call as your top tip for women to claim space? I think it's so simple, but it's so important. It's simply this, believe you have the right to claim space. So much of the time we're trained that we don't. 
And if you don't believe you have the right, none of the tips in my book are going to help very much because you don't believe in your heart that you should be able to use them. So believe you have the right to claim space. We're over 50% of the population. We should be claiming just a little over 50% of the space. Yes. Hell yes. Um, And the second, the second question really is where can people find you and get in touch with you? And this is not a big TV ad, but it would be great to hear it from you. Yeah. Well, um, (laughs) I would say the first thing is my website. You can always contact me through elizavancourt.com. There is no you in court, V-A-N-C-O-R-T. I'm also on social media. I just started kind of focusing more on Instagram, but I'm also on TikTok and I have a pretty big, I have a quarter million people following me there. But if you want to actually send me a message, Instagram is the way to go. And all the platforms besides Twitter, which I'm really bad at, you can follow me there and send me messages. I was saying before the podcast that there's nothing I like more than when people read me the send, they read the book and they send me you know, a little email saying, this is what it did for me. I always get back to them. I spend a lot of time getting back to people because if you took the time to write me an email, I will take the time to get back to you every time. So yeah, I, you'll stay in touch during my website. I actually have two big projects I'm rolling out soon. So you'll be the first to know if you sign up for my listserv, which I don't spam people. I'm actually really bad about keeping up with my listserv. So you'll just get stuff every once in a while. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's it. And, and I love staying in touch with people who read the book. Well, I'm glad you're saying that. I was already worrying about where, where is she taking the time from? 20 yeah. children, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't sleep. <laughs> Publishing a book, launching a book, and so on yeah. and so forth. As you can see, I forgot to take the time to turn off, put on Do Not Disturb. So something always goes, and you know, that's okay. Thank you, Jonah, for illustrating that. <laughs> so Eliza is no superwoman either. Here we go. No, but you are getting very, very close and I have had such a pleasure talking to you sharing your wisdom um, here with the listeners and the only thing I can do is thank you so so much for everything you're doing thank you for what you're doing truly from the bottom of my heart I believe it's transformative yeah and um, I I promise I am going to support this movement as much as possible I believe in one at a time and uh, let's do this and I'm inviting all of you out there to do exactly the same as to whether you are a man or woman transgender deciding who you want to be it doesn't matter join us and really make sure we create those changes that we want to see in the world so thank you all so much for tuning in thank you again Eliza and have a a wonderful remaining week. Bye-bye, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to the Legendary Leaders podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, then remember to subscribe to the show either on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, or on my website, www.kathleenmerkel.com. I would also love to hear from you to discover what topics you'd like to hear more about, what topics really resonated with you, and how you're enjoying the show in general. Please do leave your review on iTunes as well. It would mean the world to me. Thank you so much and speak to you again next time. Bye.